The Loose Cannons podcast is a free-form discussion about film that contains mature language, such as poop and titty, and descriptions of mature situations, such as filing taxes and raising children. We do not have any concern for spoilers, so if you haven't seen the film or films we are discussing and don't want to have the twists ruined for you, please watch the film before listening to the podcast. Yo creo que la memoria tiene fuerza de gravedad. Siempre nos atrae. Los que tienen memoria son capaces de vivir en el frágil tiempo presente. Los que no la tienen no viven en ninguna parte. Hey everyone, it's another Loose Cannons podcast coming at ya. Today we're going to be discussing 2010's Nostalgia for the Light, directed by Pachuccio Guzman. Uh, before we do that, let's discuss something else. It's a website. It's called loosecannons.net, L-O-O-S-E-C-A-N-O-N-S dot N-E-T. And in, on that website, you can access all of our podcasts, as well as all of our writings, as well as all of our videos, as well as... Not all of our discussion, because some of it got deleted. Wow. Wow. Wah, wah. But you should still visit it. It's, it's a pretty good website. Also on the yeah, of things to be discussed today, who's here? It's me, obviously, Ruben. Maybe you recognize my voice. And joining me as well is Patrick. Yeah. I am Basil. here as well. I am also here. <laughs> and everyone's favorite guest host, Michael. Guess who's Woo! back? Back again. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> On our Wikipedia, Michael's taking a commanding lead in a number of episodes that he has been on. For a while, it was like him and Marshall were neck and neck, but. Mitchell is, yeah. Well, some people have to let real life get in the way of podcasting, yeah. but. <laughs> I refuse to believe there's no. a distinction. You'll be podcasting <laughs> from your wedding. <laughs> <laughs> and do you, Michael? <laughs> Hold on a second. I just got to make this one point. <laughs> yep. Speaking of things that could work out really great or work out really badly. Whoa. <laughs> I'm not the marriage, just the wedding. Uh, sure the marriage would be great. <laughs> but weddings can be pretty terrible Stressful. sometimes. Yeah. Depende, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, this and is we can say, find out. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we vacations, they're one of those things that uh, we can. are always better in... We can. Memory <laughs> speaking. <laughs> I just wanted to tie that into the movie that we'll eventually be discussing. Yeah, we can find out eventually whether or not Michael wants to herald or denounce his wedding, but for mm-hmm. now, we can find out about the movies that we've watched recently that people want to herald and denounce. Because this is a segment we like to call Heralds and Denouncements. <laughs> You know the drill, Patrick. Um, 
I'm trying to decide if I want to herald or announce. I guess I'll. I guess I'll. Since I'm gonna have, herald if that. Uh, you know, yeah, I'm. Tips I'm you one I'll, way or the other. I'll go ahead and denounce. Uh, since I feel like the movie that I would herald is probably something that enough people have talked about. I want to denounce uh, Fifty Shades Darker because oh. <laughs> it's just. Like the the source material, cow slaughtered. <laughs> <laughs> the source material is so bad. Like it's it's so terrible. You could just tell the script is just it's garbage. Um, the story is garbage. But I want to like sneak in a secret herald, and this is going to be for Dakota Johnson's acting because I feel like Dakota Johnson actually like brings some realism to this like. In- like this insane garbage world it's like well i actually kind of feel like she's you know emotionally invested in some of this and i'm like that's a pretty decent feat of acting like to make you know some of these lines that she has to deliver seem real because they really are terrible like the the whole story is terrible the whole you know idea of like this (laughs) this man like controlling this woman's life to this extent is really terrible but the fact that I still feel like a lot of empathy and am like still pretty much rooting for her in the movie, I'm like, that's on you, Dakota Johnson. Like you're doing a good job, you know, performing horrible material. So I hope that someday you are given a platform that's much better to showcase your talents. Like how to be single. Be single too. <laughs> <laughs> how to be single too. Oh boy. So yeah, how to be uh, single as well. A herald and a denouncement <laughs> in the same in the same review. Ooh, sneaky. Uh, I'm gonna herald with very little denouncement. Edge of Tomorrow, which I rewatched uh, somewhat by coincidence, like a few days before Bill Paxton actually passed away. So, uh, I mean, I hope that me watching it didn't kill him, but. Uh, <laughs> To go Seems back in unlikely. Time, to go back in time and change something. He did. Yeah. He does. He does die in that movie a lot, along with yeah. everyone else. It's true, but not the last time. Uh, but yeah, I liked it even more than uh, I did the first time. It's uh, really fun, really tightly uh, constructed, and um, the ways it keeps elaborating. It's um, premise really really worked for me and Emily Blunt is great in it she's really good like I I remembered her being good but like I think at the time that I saw it I kind of didn't know who she was like I think I hadn't really seen her in anything else and now having seen her in lots of other stuff going back I was like wow she's really killing it and Paxton's fun too it was sad to watch that movie and then that he died a few days later because uh, I really think that it uses um, his kind of acting in a really good way where like his character is really over the top but it feels over the top in a conscious way where like you know the platform for like drill instructor type military guys is that you're conscious of yourself as like performing that weird role and so when he's like tip of the spear edge of the knife <laughs> always made me laugh every time <laughs> yeah that yeah. is a good performance I put that movie up there with the Matrix in terms of like able to weave in 
long periods of people just talking about like what the world is or their plans and stuff like that and making it seem like engaging and exciting. Yeah. Both solid movies at doing that. Michael? Oh, my turn. Oh, I will herald the 1972 Costa Gavras film State of Siege. Um, I've never even heard of this. It's good. Um, <laughs> I've heard of Costa Gravis, but that's it. Yeah, he did uh, also know better known for Zed. Um, mm-hmm. He it's sort of a fictionalized account of a uh, something that happened in real life, as is sort of his usual practice. Um, sort of revolves around the kidnapping of a a CIA agent in Uruguay in the seventies. Um, uh, in the movie, it's a guy named played by Yves Montand, uh, Agent Santore. In real life, it was actually a man named, I think it was Dan <coughs> Mitrione. Uh, you can look it up on Wikipedia, or you can read the book Hidden Terrors, which is all about the CIA torture program in Brazil and Uruguay. Um, yeah, so it's really interesting film. Um, sometimes Costa Gavras gets a little bit didactic, I guess, but... I think it's helpful in situations like this where it's sort of a, an issue that was hidden for a long time and people probably don't know a lot about. Um, one of the few films I've seen where they actually make discussion or interrogation scenes actually interesting. Um, and yeah, it was really good. And it was actually very tense for a sort of a 1970s thrillers, which sometimes are a little bit on the... Uh, they haven't aged very well sometimes, I find. Sure. <laughs> so I would heartily recommend that, and I would also recommend picking up the book, Hidden Terror. Nice. Speaking of good interrogation scenes, if you haven't checked out our previous podcast, Kira, <laughs> <laughs> featuring me, Patrick, and Ed, you yep. should. That's, that's a, a good that's one. That's a good one. <laughs> Ed, Ed did a great job first time in. Yeah, he nailed it. <laughs> And not in the sarcastic way, like when we finished talking about <laughs> Catching Fire. <laughs> when we went off topic for 30 minutes. Um, but I am going to uh, continue, as I said, in the tradition of heralding. It's a good week, it seems like. Patrick could have heralded something. We could have been four for four, so we'll just pretend that he did. <laughs> I did um, I did herald Dakota Johnson's acting, so yeah <laughs> um, I watched a movie from 1997 uh, anime film called Perfect Blue directed by Satoshi Kon which um, probably would be a five star film if the animation was as good looking as his future stuff because it's one of the better films I've seen about patriarchal violence for sure and uh, I, th- I won't talk too much about it, but one of the things that I think it gets really right is that there are lots of films, um, both about men and women, that center on this like sort of fissure between like where their life ends up and their idealized self, and like the tension and anxiety that that causes. But this seems to be one of the few films that realizes that not only is the main character pulled 
into this world that she's not super happy about, but that her idealized self is also formulated by the male gaze as well. Um, and in a, I assume, intentional reference, the name of the show that she's on is called Double Bind, which if you haven't heard of is a for, uh, theory by W.E.B. Du Bois um, about being a black person living in a white supremacist nation and the idea that you have that same sort of choice of like fitting in and being to like submitting yourself to the standards of whiteness um, or living like a more violent, dangerous life regardless of like what choice you might have made in a vacuum like neither one is a successful choice in in this case like even if you for instance you know would want to live that what would be considered more white life or in this in the case of uh mimi in perfect blue this more virginal uh life um even if that would be your choice because of the society that you live in, you don't actually get to make a choice. Choices taken away from you. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. pretty interesting film. And yeah. uh, Satoshi Khan is pretty interesting <coughs> as a director. Mm-hmm. Well, this is the first feature of his that I really liked. I did not, um, but granted, I saw Paprika like 15 years ago, so I don't know what I could say about that. Um, but I watched yeah. Tokyo Godfathers pretty recently and didn't like that one at all, so <laughs> maybe yeah. he wasn't for me, but I like this one. Yeah. Paranoia Agents Quite good a too. If you, I know you don't like watching series, but Paranoia Agents yeah. a good series. Millennium Actress yeah, right. is also good. I oh, yeah, Millennium did not Actress like so watching good. series. <laughs> I probably would have watched uh, Millennium Actress, but um, I... I saw two movies yesterday, but I'm not talking about them, so I wanted to make sure that I saw something that I could herald or denounce this morning, and uh, it wasn't immediately obvious that Millennium Actress had subtitles, so then I moved on. In fact, I went through like four different movies, watched like the first two minutes of each of them, and they all had a problem until I came up to Perfect Blue, and then I was like, alright, I'm going with this one. (laughs) Yeah, and I actually sort of chose to watch it in part because, or I chose to watch this Satoshi film in part because I didn't like his other two films. Uh, I was like, I'll probably have a strong reaction to this one way or the other. Because <laughs> that was one of the things I started watching another film, and I was like, this looks fine, but I don't know whether or not I'm going to have a strong reaction to it. <laughs> so I'm going to put it away and maybe watch it later because I don't have something that I can herald or denounce. Nice. Good times. And it all worked out. Boom. Perfect blue-ally. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, okay, now we move on to the main event where we're going to discuss Nostalgia for the Light, which was my pick, so I will tell you what this film is. Uh, not the plot exactly, because it's a documentary, but it's a documentary about a essentially about a desert in uh, Chile and uh, in this desert there are two groups of scientists who are doing 
work, one uh, group of astronomers who are looking to space to find things out, and another a group of, I guess, archaeologist historians who are digging up the dead bodies that the Pinochet regime buried in the desert there. And um, it is, I guess, sort of a series of shots and photographs and uh, talking head interviews that discuss what science is, what history is, what memory is, um, and tries to come to a conclusion how humans are supposed to reckon with these large and small ideas. Patrick. Um, I liked this movie, uh, but I don't think that I liked it as much as I could have. Uh, I feel like this subject matter in particular is like right up my alley. I love, you know, huge ideas like this being tied together, uh, especially by some pretty stunning geography, which the, uh, I believe it's called the Atacama Desert, uh, is like, it's gorgeous. And for some reason, I just last night was like not feeling like getting into like really huge ideas. I was just really tired and I didn't feel like I could wrap my head around of it, a lot of it. And so I don't think that I enjoyed it nearly as much as I could have, but I did enjoy it, I guess, generally on the whole. Um, and I feel like it's a movie that at some point I could revisit and enjoy a lot more. Basil. Um, I did not like this movie almost at all. Uh, I didn't, um, I don't know. I thought that the kind of parallels drawn between the astronomy and, uh, the archaeology were sort of like, it never really gelled for me. And something about, um, Guzman's narration, like it reminded me of, Werner Herzog in a way that I didn't like, and then uh, sort of like the fact that he narrates but is never on screen, like created this dissonance for me where like Herzog, at least when he's annoying, he's like a personality within the movie, so then he's like kind of creating this thing. So sort of like the more autobiographical stuff and also like some of the pontificating that he was doing, like combined with the fact that he was just like this unseen voice of God, I was just like, shut up. I don't like this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have, uh, it's not really relevant at all, but you said earlier that there's going to be four movies that you gave four stars to this month, and I could only think of two, and then there's one that, you know, you're not telling me about, but I'm kind of maybe assuming that's one of them hmm. <laughs> and and I was like what could the fourth be and I was like well, maybe it's the movie we're going to be discussing today but I guess I was wrong I'm not remembering what you've watched this month it's true because you're wrong on both accounts <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, Edge of Tomorrow I guess is probably one of them now that you've mentioned it yep <laughs> anyway uh, me uh, yeah yeah, I was kind of lukewarm on this one as well. I feel like it's two movies kind of smashed together, both of which would be good by themselves, but I think when they're mixed together, it's not so great. Um, I didn't 
I I feel like I caught the meaning of his metaphor or his um, comparison between archaeology and astronomy, but I didn't think it actually holds true. (laughs) So uh, I'm going to say somewhere in the middle, ranging towards probably more of a dislike. Well, well, I love this movie. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Of the many great things that I think are happening in this movie, I think the most interesting is this idea, and maybe it isn't as new or as nuanced as it could be, which is that when people look to space, and anyone I know who's really in love with space or thinking about space as like a new place of exploration, that they're actually looking at the past in a way in which uh, they don't think about, and that the future and the past are, you know, the same thing. And what I mean by that is both literally in the sense that when you look into space, what you're seeing is something that happened anywhere from a second ago to eight minutes ago to several years in the into the past, because the light is just reaching Earth. And, but then also in the way in which throughout the universe, past versions of how life came to be exist. Stardust is, you know, which is what turns into planets and suns and people is out there in the universe. Um, and that I think that's kind of weirdly cool. It makes space feel both more tactile and important to me than maybe it has in the past and also the past that Guzman is going to discuss in terms of Chile feel uh, as weighty as I think it needs to be while at the same time like digestible in a way in which I wasn't expecting because it like makes it part of this much wider history. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I actually found that um, like the part where he's talking about the present being this like thin I guess existence, like this like razor thin existence or whatever to be pretty exciting in terms of an idea of like oh wow, you know, like yeah, the life that we have here now is just like this lip in the you know i guess consciousness of the universe but you know it's you know it's all we know so it's it's that idea of like big and small again like you know the smallest little thing is like so important to our lives and even this like tiny you know blip on a blip in the past of this country is like everything to the people who were looking for the bones in that desert like they are just you know, their whole lives are now, like, consumed by this sort of moment in the in the past. And so I, th- I think those are, like, some really cool connections that he was drawing to the idea of space, you know, being this big, um, I guess, like, gallery of the past, like, things that have happened in the past. Uh, I mean, I, like... I feel like I'm not going to have a lot to say regarding this discussion. Like, I feel like I, 
I'm, I'm going to try and, like, sit out unless I have something specific, because, you know, I mean, for me, when I was watching the movie, like, I was turned off by it almost immediately. Like, I saw the Pearl button, and I felt sort of the same, that it was, like, two movies that kind of, like, had been shoehorned together, and then, I don't know, just something about the, like, prettiness of all these close-ups of the telescope, and then, like, the reveal that it's like this big telescope and uh then like the kind of the narration as it began was like oh we lived in this sort of like great time it was like peaceful and then we had this thing that was good and then pinochet took over and it was bad i i was really hoping that the the narration in that was going to be like that he had started in some place and then slowly grew to realize that he was living in something awful that he had already, like, that he had just taken for granted because he'd grown up in it was something, uh, like, good or peaceful or whatever. But he, but that's not really it. Like, he's talking about, like, previous socialist presidents who, while Allende was, like, more radical, so there was, like, a lot of excitement surrounding him when he was put into power, it wasn't really like they were overthrowing this repressive regime, and then that regime, like, retook power with Pinochet. It was, like, a bunch of pretty good presidents in Chile, and then one, like, one pretty radical, awesome-seeming president, and then the pendulum swinging super far to the right. And I was like, I don't know how I feel about, like, this kind of, uh, sort of wistful thinking back to, because, I don't know, like... I mean, Pinochet is pretty awful, but, like, I feel like, obviously, there can be kind of, uh, you can be critical about almost any time in your, uh, life, so, like, looking back to the previous people and being like, oh, we were living a pretty good life, like, I don't know, that, that just threw me off right away, and I was like, I don't want to care about what this movie's doing, and so... I mean, I think that, like, I'm not going to really be able to, um, like, I don't, I don't want to approach this podcast where anytime somebody says something, I'm going to jump in and be, like, the devil's advocate and be like, oh, but, like, boom, let me take down your point. Like, well, I don't actually, know. Like, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, so. it's what we do on the podcast, though. Yeah, but I mean, like, I'm not like this isn't a movie that I'm excited to dislike. Like, I'm not like, like I wasn't like walking into it being like, oh boy, I can't wait to hate this Patricio Guzman. Like, it's a it's a movie about like really sad stuff. So I'm not like excited to be like, oh yeah, fuck this movie about like, you know, trying to bring knowledge to the wider world about like. Pinochet's, like, murdering of his political <laughs> adversaries. I don't know, you know? Like, I think if this were a movie about less uh, weighty, real subject matter, I might be more on board to really tear it apart or something, but... Well, I think that they do address the idea that they... Like, even before Pinochet, there was a time in their history where they still were subjugating people, because they do mm-hmm. say that they you know, they essentially, like, wiped out all the Indians that were there, and there was a big conflict between, um, I'm forgetting the name of the group, they don't, I don't think that they, 
may not have addressed this in the film, but yeah. there was like a big, like, pushback from a from a large group of indigenous peoples there to all yeah, the other I, th- I mean, I think that it's important that before they even get to the bodies mm-hmm. and trying to dig up the bones, they're driving around in the desert and looking at these rocks and being like, these are carvings made by pre-Columbian people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As yeah. if the, those are the the times that exist for them. It's like, there's us, and then there's the not us, mm-hmm. right? And that I, I mean, and I feel like, again, the line that I believe we're going to begin this podcast with also, therefore, throws that line that bothers you into question a little bit more when he says that, like, memory is a gravitational force, like, that he's admitting or confessing the idea that um, how we think of things ends up centering how we view everything. So he's, in a way, if not so specifically, saying, I was a child at this time, so it seemed peaceful to me, and then I was an adult, and in this case, an adult making a movie called Battle of Chile, which, by the way, I did not like at all, (laughs) (laughs) Um, about what happened in the moment capturing you know the brutality including uh watching one of his own cameramen get shot by one of pinochet's soldiers and die in front of him and uh that obviously being (laughs) a pretty big effect on how he sees the world Mm-hmm. from that point on and then of course also that movie you know getting banned and getting repressed and him having to like sneak it out of Chile so that it didn't get destroyed um, so I don't know I would say that he is more confessional and critical of that idea than you give him credit for <laughs> that's fair I mean yeah like the other reason that I'm not going to speak up a lot is that probably about halfway through this movie I barely was paying attention to it so anything that happened in the second half is gonna be hard for me to uh, comment on or be specific about just because hey all right so let's talk about the second half of this movie <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no um, I, I'll also respond to say that I really did like this first uh, shots and the reason why I like them is because you would get these extreme close-ups right of all these gears and stuff turning together and I was like what is that is that like a film camera and we even see like a little thing spinning around making sort of looking like the I didn't remember what's called like the zoetrope with like the Mm -hmm. horse that looks like it's moving I think that's what it's called Um, and it reminded me of that and you get this sort of immediate image of like a film in itself as like a scientific document that exists in the present, the present of it being made, and the present of you watching it, but also at the same time is an artifact of like human experience. Um, and then I think that's really kind of cool that, you know, even though you hear voices before that, that it takes over 10 minutes before a human actually appears on screen, that before that it's just like rocks and telescopes and buildings with telescopes in them and it's just all these kinds of things where it's like you know human affected stuff but no actual humans Mm -hmm. yeah um 
I like those cool dust shots. Those <laughs> yeah. are my favorite shots in the movie. Yeah, Stardust. It's cool, like he has that like a beautiful shot of like Stardust against like a black screen, and then it fades in front of like the. I think intentionally he uses worse cameras to film the talking heads, and so then there's like a shot of like a guy walking around his office that looks like significantly worse than the Stardust. And you get this really super beautiful swirling Stardust as he's just like shuffling papers on his desk or whatever. Yeah, I I also think that um, to go back to what Basil was saying about um, perhaps what he didn't like about how the film kind of, I guess, rose-tinted the past a little bit, that it does seem like he's drawing a parallel to the, you know, the Pinochet regime from what happened in the past by, you know, they, they talk about how the, the concentration camp that they had was basically an old mining facility, you know, and the only thing that the military added to it was barbed wire. And so it was like, it was basically like, yeah, these, these systems of oppression were already in place in the country. You know, it was just like out of our purview, like, or like out of our sight, like out of, you know, what we knew or what I knew as a child and stuff like that. So, you know, he's basically saying like, all they did was, you know, just update it with this extra anti-escape mechanism. But, you know, the, you know, the, the mining, like the oppression of the miners was still there. Like it was still part of the, the structure of the country already. So, you know, they Harlan were... County Pinochet. <laughs> <laughs> well, they even show that whole graveyard of the miners who were just buried, not buried, I guess, but just deposited above ground in open coffins and just left there to die or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And they were. And they're, how the... In his voiceover, he also actually said um, that they were mostly nomadic families. So, what you, I guess, I guess the implication there that these are nomads who are essentially forced by modernization to settle down, forced out of their traditional way of life, because nomads typically don't stick around in large camps to mine <laughs> for saltpeter. Sure, yeah, yeah. So, and that's also sort of the same point at which he's talking about the um, what happened to their indigenous people, or kind of alluding to it. So, I guess there's a lot of unspoken stuff going on here but I wish he would have kind of picked one to to, to, to discuss because the comparison sort of seems to in a way I guess some people could mistake then the discussion of the past or of history as like a technical issue or a scientific issue when especially with the recent past it's still a political or more moral or ethical issue you don't need a telescope, for example, to know what happened in Chile. It's right there out in the <laughs> open, right? The people are still walking around in the street, like that lady said. Like they, she Put has that to... out on the DVD cover. <laughs> you don't need a telescope to know what's happening in Chile. <laughs> Critic Michael Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like you don't you don't need any sort of scientific or technical expertise to to see the what happened was wrong and that it that the country hasn't really dealt with it but what by comparing the two it almost seems to break it in down into a technical issue rather than like an ethical or political one i guess i agree with you on on paper mm -hmm. like in the sense that like i intellectually 
agree with you, but that I'm coming from a place where so many times when I watch a movie about, you know, uh, a horrific tragedy that's happened either in the past or the recent past, that it focuses so much on, like, the human element and the despair of it, that I feel like, you know, I've said this, like, on previous podcasts, but, you know, people watch a very sad movie about the Holocaust, and then the way that they come out of it is they feel like they've experienced the Holocaust in a certain way, like, <laughs> which I think is kind of gross and insulting, mm-hmm. like, to be like, I too suffered while I watched this movie, and it's like, yeah, that's not, that's not an okay way to look at, like, real human tragedy and violence, mm-hmm. and um, that this sort of distancing effect, you know, which I talked about with Tower, which is another movie I liked, although Basil liked that one more, um, is that dealing with violence, extreme violence and terror, is something that I feel like it's dangerous to do it in like a kind of emotional way, although I feel like, yeah, like maybe the politics are missing. Mm-hmm. Not to say that Guzman hasn't obviously dealt with the political side of this mm-hmm. particular part of Chile's history before because he like he did the Battle of Chile and I think he's done a few other documentaries about the situation in Chile but yeah I, I, I mean I think he's only done documentaries about the Pinochet regime yeah I think there might actually the pearl button I think is, yeah I think he might have actually done another astronomy documentary so I wonder if he was just trying to get weave the two strains together he started seeing things that were connections that I don't think are necessarily there. Yeah, it made me wonder whether or not he came up with this thesis and then was super sort of, I don't know, lucky is a bad word, but to find a woman whose parents were killed by Pinochet who was also an astronomer, or if she was the inspiration for the thesis of this film, because I thought that that was like, I was like, oh wow, this is like a really fortuitous con- convergence here at the end when they're interviewing her. A uh, kind of uh, while we're young thing going on. Right. He's interviewing that guy, and it turns out he's got all these interesting stories or whatever, <laughs> and it turns out it was like a totally fake setup. Right. <laughs> but, and the story goes crazy about it. <laughs> with that discussion with that lady at the end, though, it's like... I while I can appreciate like from a psychological or personal perspective that seeing the connection between humanity and the stars and seeing life as sort of this large cycle so that nothing's really ever over or that you can, it's helping her deal with the loss of her parents, that interconnectedness between humanity and the rest of the universe. As a message though, that kind of seems to sidestep again like the issue of but what happened is still wrong and you shouldn't like by see by sort of allowing yourself to see it you know as just part of the universe that kind of you concede the point then that well maybe these things were meant to happen or it's not that big of a deal because life goes on in which case, why bother agitating about it at all? It seems to kind of contradict everything that came before with the ladies who were searching for their relatives in the desert. 
Like, I don't think that they... I, mean, I, I don't think that seeing the universe mm-hmm. as sort of an interconnected web is going to give those ladies searching for bodies in the desert a lot of solace. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I do dislike about this movie is the cutesy sort of ending where he brings some of them into the... Uh, I don't know, astronomy hole. <laughs> Observatory. Like telescope. I like my word better. Astronomy hole. <laughs> Ooh, garage, garage, la di da, Mr. Frenchman. What do you call it? A car hole. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like there's a little bit of like a performative, like orchestral nature to that moment to be like, ah, they've achieved peace or whatever. And I'm like, I don't buy that, really. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not on board with that. Like, you're making me feel like a thing. And especially like, to me, the interview with the the woman that you're talking about is the best part of the film. And I thought the shot of her just holding her baby, oh, I yeah, assume. Oh, yeah, the baby. I, and and yeah. breathing was really nice. That's... Um, I, I was also going to say liked, that. <laughs> I liked it in um, that movie that Patrick really liked, Spell to Ward Off the Darkness, but I think I like it even better here. Um, and that, I don't know, I mean, it's, you know, it's a problem that I guess I have with Buddhism. Like, I recognize it as an issue with Buddhism, like the separation of caring about earthliness in a way can lead you to sort of an inactivity about the suffering of real people and that like if you're able to achieve that that maybe it's an activation of privilege in and of itself it's like you've achieved inner peace but you're achieving that by ignoring the complete lack of outer peace Mm -hmm, (laughs) that mm -hmm. exists around you but that's not i mean this is that's not how this film makes me feel about it to me, it like makes action more possible, in a way, as opposed to being like so buried with grief that you don't do anything. I don't know. It's difficult because, at least from what Guzman and many of the other people in the film are saying, it seems like Chile is avoiding specifically talking about any of this in a really constructive way. And the women who are searching for the bodies in the desert, like you said, Ruben, they seem sort of just buried under just the weight of their sorrow, I guess. So they're not really doing anything, some people would say, I guess, constructive as far as furthering that dialogue. So it's just trying to achieve a personal mm -hmm. piece as opposed to a more wider political piece. So I guess then you're left in the position of, how does one get Chile to talk about this issue? And obviously for us living in North America, that's not really something we can tell them how to do, but (laughs) it raises a lot of questions though. And I mean, there are questions that are, uh, you can take those same questions and apply them to a lot of things that have happened in Canada or the United States as well, as far as a variety of atrocities. So. Some of them involving similar groups of people. Exactly. <laughs> Socialists, the natives who lived here. Uh, <laughs> Leftists as well. CIA yeah. intervention. It's not a 
thing that North America has a good history of dealing with no. either. <laughs> Whereas if you if you look at Uruguay, um, one of the Tupamaros who kidnapped that uh, CIA guy in state of state of siege, he um, he's now their president. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's pretty badass. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, That's I mean, a way I, to survive yeah. being kidnapped is to become president of the nation. That's what sh that's what the end of Taken should have been. Is that that girl becomes like the president of Ukraine or whatever Eastern European <laughs> country they're totally no. otherizing in that movie. Yeah. No, Michael said that one of the kidnappers is now yeah. president, not the mm -hmm. guy who got kidnapped. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But. Or at least uh, one of the yeah, um, Jose Mujica. President of Uruguay. Nice. <laughs> I'm all for electing a guy who kidnaps CIA operatives <laughs> as president. <coughs> um, but yeah, I, uh, what was um, I think it's it's weird for me a little bit watching the movie because I feel like a lot of what he's saying is like very obviously textual but like and he's like you know really just you know the narration or what uh, combined with the images like it's like here's what happened like in a pretty you know like straightforward way but that it also like sort of then leaves a lot of other things like more i mean like as a person who only has like a Wikipedia level, uh, like knowledge of <laughs> Chile's history, like pretty um, open ended. Like you know, I think that it's sort of, I mean, it's better it, than it, mine, right. which is paying attention to the first two parts of Battle for Chile, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But um, like, I don't know. It's like um, what. I, I mean, I, I understand in a broader sense, like, the benefit of just pretending that bad things didn't happen as a country, but, um, like, if there's, like, a specific motivation why Chile has sort of, like, suppressed or at least chosen to ignore this knowledge when, you know, at this point it seems like everyone's at least mostly on board that Pinochet wasn't a great guy, like, um... <laughs> that, uh, I don't know, like, I mean, again, it's something I could have missed in the movie, but I, I was sort of like, what, I mean, um, you know, like, within the United States, like, to make a, a comparison to, like, the OJ documentary or whatever, like, the, the LAPD has a really strong desire to not have itself portrayed as, like, pretty awful, because it's still, like, doing a lot of the things that, um, it's accused of doing back in the 90s and 80s and 70s, etc. So it's, it's still a powerful force that wants to retain that power and not have it be challenged for what's, what it's doing. But like, I don't have a strong understanding of the Chilean government as it exists right now that, would, that is benefiting from acting like Pinochet didn't do these kind of terrible things. 
Well, outside of Chile, though, I guess you could say that the CIA and sort of the Chicago economics people who sort of helped engineer the coup, they're, right. they're still very powerful people. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I mean... Like, Milton Friedman I is still like a, considered a maybe good guy. Sort of more apt... <laughs> Not by more, me. Um, maybe more apt American comparison might be the civil rights movement, which is, like, you see these photos of, like people screaming and like you know protesters and marchers and like people being integrated into schools and you're like probably one out of every three of those people screaming is still alive like walking around somewhere and we pretend that it like happened in this like distant past because it's more comfortable Mm -hmm. than the idea that it's like the old lady like that we're holding the door open for at the grocery store that like 50 years ago she was (laughs) yelling at a six-year-old black girl who was just trying to go to school yeah yeah. 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 Um, I, I I definitely um, dated somebody for a while whose grandmother was one of those people, probably, <laughs> because she always talked about her grandmother would say things and she was like, Granny, no! <laughs> it's just like, oh boy. Oh, man. So one nice thing about my, well, at least I guess my mom's side of the family is they're all uh, rebels and rabble rousers. three great-grandparents who escaped Poland before World War II another great-grandparent who was a communist and was sentenced to life in Siberia and uh, uh, her dad was like a big attorney and he basically just paid for her to escape to America and she never got to see her family again my grand, my grandmother, um, rode the freedom buses to march in Selma with my uncle. So, pretty cool people. Yeah, way cooler than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, because my whole family's from Portland or California. There racism is just sort of an abstract like you know <laughs> low level white noise hum yeah. kind of they're, they're pretty divorced from the immediacy of the civil rights movement they just get sort of a spidey sense when there's like a minority around or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I don't exactly know my family's history with most of that but they seem like they're like complacent yeah, mm-hmm. and like you know, compliant to it anyway. Like, they seem like pretty status quo people, so. <laughs> Look the other way types. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They're just kind of like, oh, I don't want to get involved in anything. Like, that's that seems like most of my family. And Spidey Sense comment makes me think of this really funny scene in uh, Blackish, where there's an episode that, like, very much details, like, the idea of. Uh, Anthony Anderson's character, you know, having more grown up, like closer to that time and that movement as being like extremely skeptical and then like a younger generation who like, you know, grew up more during the Obama era and is basically just convinced that like those things don't happen anymore and obviously it's somewhere in between those like two extreme perspectives is, you know, sort of where the episode ends up coming down on, but there was a pretty funny scene where um, they're like all in an elevator um, 
and then a white woman gets in and like she like pulls her purse like really close to her and like Anthony Anderson's like look at this like silently behind her in the elevator and she like pulls out her credit card and she like picks up her phone and she's like yeah, I'd like to order something and then she's just, like my credit card number is four three five five <laughs> it's like, that was a pretty good joke <laughs> um anyway uh yeah, I mean, I, to bring it back, um, I agree with what y'all are saying, um, it's just that that's not how I felt about this movie. I didn't feel mm -hmm. like it was doing that, <laughs> um, but, you know, if I did feel like it was doing that, I would hate it. <laughs> um, uh, I, I know more about Germany for sure, just because, well, one, it's a Western nation, two, I'm a Jew, and three, I went there on a Jewish studies trip, but I really, from what little I know, I like the way in which they sort of have dealt with it, and I wish the U.S. would take cues from it, which is that, like, there's lots of stuff in Germany that is just supposed to represent, like, it's a presence of an absence, which is a really sad and weird dichotomy so like one of their monuments is they dug a hole in the ground and then filled it up with books and then covered it with glass um, to represent all the books that were burned during Nazi rallies and stuff like that and so it's like you can't get to the books to like experience them so it's they're you know representative of like those books that were lost and at the same time it's like a hole in the ground like there's something that you know is just missing from Germany because it was destroyed um, it's other places where there was like you know Jewish houses that were bombed or whatever um, they weren't bombed by Germany they were bombed by the Allies but because they were Jewish houses they just left them like destroyed and then we just put a plaque up in front of it so it's like you'll be walking and they'll be like apartments, 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 and then there'll just be a big hole in between it where you can like look through and like, you know, like very clearly reminded of this uh, thing that's missing. Birmingham has done an okay job with that. It's not nearly, they haven't put the level of, I think, artistic craft into it. Um, it's a lot more functional, which is that basically like on almost every corner of downtown Birmingham, there's like a sign reminding people of important historical civil rights events that happened where that sign is. So it's so many important slash terrifying civil rights things happened in Birmingham. Yeah, and I would I would venture to guess that the reason that they haven't put the level of artistic craft into it is because maybe they don't have the artists at their disposal. Yeah, the that money level probably. In. Yeah, I I, <laughs> I I would put more faith in a Berlin is a lot Ger richer yeah. town than yeah. Birmingham. Probably a lot yeah. bigger, higher profile German artists too than there are in Alabama. I mean, but again, if you could pay really good artists, they would come and they would do the work. Birmingham is essentially a broke town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jefferson County is bankrupt, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
ways the German economy and Berlin especially have been doing well over the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yes. So. I definitely feel like the experience of being in Berlin is more interesting than watching this movie, though. <laughs> I enjoyed both. Sure. But I feel like that about a lot of, you know, actual real-life human experiences. <laughs> no. Not and, me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Give me um, movies every time. And again, to, you know, bring it back to sort of what I was saying earlier, is that on that trip, I really enjoyed being in Berlin and, uh, like, going to the Jewish Historical Museum, which, again, involved, like, a lot of those... Uh, I guess sculpted spaces that are supposed to invoke the feelings in you of certain ideas so they took like the old Jewish museum and they sort of like I don't know if they refurbished it or rebuilt it and it, you know because the old Jewish museum from like the late 1800s is basically just a house like you go inside this like house with like a couple of like little artifacts in it and then you sort of like go down a hole like through this dark place and come out into like the new you know uh, museum like the Jewish museum and it's all it's none of it's designed to like make any sense like it looks like a lightning bolt or something from <laughs> from the air so like you can't really find your way around and it's like pretty cool and confusing and I enjoyed all of that and then we went to Auschwitz, and our tour guide for Auschwitz was very much invested in this idea of like making people feel like super emotional about the experience, and was like describing in intimate detail like things that happened, like people getting punched in the face and stuff like that. And I was like, I hate this. Can we yeah. go back to the weirdo sculptures? Yeah. <laughs> I was way more into that. It was kind of the opposite of most of uh, my group. So that's definitely like the place where I come from, but I mean, I agree with y'all, it could have been more political, but I like unique ways of approaching violent histories because it seems so often that when fiction and nonfiction tries to deal with it, that it ends up on one of these two extremes, an extreme of like a Quentin Tarantino-esque cartoonish violence where you don't even really think about it at all, or a violence of such like stone-faced seriousness that like um, provides you with this sort of cathartic feeling of we've done our part or something that makes yep. me feel really ill. <laughs> what would be an example of that, something like Saving Private Ryan? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the I assume Schindler's List, but I haven't rewatched it since I was like, you know, 16, so I, I, yeah, that would be I, my guess I, about Schindler's List, but I the, don't, I don't the most actually know. Yeah, the most recent film I've seen that did that was uh, Hidden Figures. Definitely felt <laughs> like, oh yeah, we've done our part. We've solved <laughs> racism. <laughs> Slide with some noise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I haven't seen the movie, but I would say the trailer for the Zookeeper's Wife definitely looked along oh, yeah. those lines as well. Oh yeah. Just like another oh, and a long line of movies about the Holocaust. There, just like 
about you, the audience, feeling catharsis. And I'm like, I don't want to feel catharsis about the Holocaust. Like, we don't get to feel cathartic about that. We don't get to, you know, have a it doesn't, pl- platonic moment it, of, like... <laughs> it doesn't just go away. Yeah. <laughs> it is unresolved forever. <laughs> to, to quote Nicolas Cage and... Vampire's Kiss. Yep. It doesn't just <laughs> go away. He was talking about the Holocaust. When you said the zookeeper's wife, I thought you were talking about the, like, that, uh, the, we the zoo. zoo. Yeah. We bought I was a like, zoo. what? Yeah. You didn't know that movie yeah, was about the Holocaust. About the, about the Holocaust? Yeah, his wife died in the Holocaust, and so that's why they buy this zoo to cure his child. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, um, one of the reasons why I think that Inglorious Bastards is sort of my favorite Tarantino movie is I think that that first scene sort of flips the switch on that genre because I feel like The Zookeeper's Wife and movies like that, like part of the catharsis the audience is feeling is like, oh, if that was me, I would totally be that zookeeper's wife, like, keeping <laughs> yeah. those Jewish people safe or whatever. And, yeah. you know, that, like, that, that the beginning of Inglorious Bastards is, like, a man who's a nice person trying to do a good job, but, like, in the moment breaks down and can't, uh, has to, you know, like, capitulates to the Nazis, and then a bunch of people get killed because of it. And that that's a much more realistic depiction of how most people would probably uh, behave in that situation. We know it's how most people would behave in that situation (laughs) because there's inequity happening all the time and people like to look into the past and be like, "Uh, if I was there during that inequity, I would have acted (laughs) differently than how I'm currently acting about the inequity (laughs) that is happening right now. Yeah. Which is exactly why I love Snowpiercer so much. (laughs) 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 Because it is... so hard on the assault on people who feel that way. <laughs> it's like, no, you're just gonna sit back and enjoy your Coca-Cola commercials, you dummy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh boy. <coughs> anyway. Um. Yeah, I'll look over my notes to see if I had anything else. I mean, I assume that. You thought the photographs were pretty? Everyone thought that the <laughs> images were pretty. <laughs> Even though I mean, they the didn't shots like the movie. <laughs> yeah. Those shots of like the endless um like grave markers were pretty unsettling. Pretty harrowing. <laughs> Aesthetically sound, but disturbing. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was thinking that maybe Basil felt about this the way that uh, Ilya felt about that Vim Vendors movie, where he's like, beautiful photography, I hated it. (laughs) I hate that film. (laughs) Oh yeah, Salt of the Earth, or is that Salt of the Earth? Is that the one he was Mm -hmm. like? Yeah, that's what it's called. (laughs) You know, for me, one of the the shots that struck me the most, though, was probably one of the most boring, was just when he was, it was just sort of a static shot of all those... um, cabinets lined up in the basement of whatever building that was with all the just the bodies in little cardboard boxes oh yeah mm-hmm. it just kind of gives you a sense of the scale of it but it's also just 
it's just overwhelming yeah. to see that many people packed into in a way packed into that small of a space like that's what it re- has been reduced down to yeah, yeah and oh, go, go, go ahead go ahead I, I think I okay. thought you might be saying something <coughs> that I was going to say um, yeah and so the that's the part when he has he has the quote uh, that I was one of the ones that I wrote down where he asks like will these bodies be in a museum or will they be given a burial and like I feel like that tension between the personal and political exists more there than y'all are giving it credit for that like that line and like that idea of being like do we prop up these people's you know family members as a way of reminding us or do we let them as a family you know move on I guess um, it's like a, a question that I don't have an answer to um, which is something that I generally like in a film when I feel mm-hmm. like it brings up something that I hadn't really thought about and realized that I don't have a way to answer it and I think that that woman represents that dichotomy as well like my favorite thing that she says is that people will be like oh you don't seem like someone whose parents have died <laughs> like what a weird thing to like say to someone it's like yeah I'm not a complete wreck <laughs> like I've managed to you know get a job and have a baby and live a life and it's like in a weird way those people are on some level upset that she's not feeling like this idea right. of <laughs> of grief that they want um, yeah. that they feel like is necessary to respect what has happened and at the same time like if she's to play into that role of grief that means that she doesn't get to live her life right because <laughs> mm-hmm. she has to play the broken person her, mm-hmm. these other people, this audience, I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, wow, I, that reminded me that that's a similar narrative that plays out all the time in uh, rape culture here, that especially with like uh, people who would deny that it happened, be like, oh, you, that can't have happened to you because you seem like you're an okay person and processing the idea that that could happen to you and uh, like whatever that, and that you wouldn't be like just walking around completely devastated at all moments doesn't track with people's perception of it going in a completely different direction to change the topic. Uh, I don't know how to do this elegantly now that I put my put the conversation where I did, but uh, how did you all feel about the depictions of the grandparents who did raise her? Like, every time they cut to them, it's just like this sort of straight face. That was one of the things that reminded me most of, like, Herzog in that it's like, the shot is so sort of disorienting but I also couldn't figure out like what purpose it was getting at in being that way I don't know 
I didn't <laughs> make anything of it. It went, it went by me without really noticing it, so I'd mm. have to rewatch the movie in order to. Sure. Yeah, those were the grandparents who gave up her parents, right, to protect her. I believe. Um, I can't remember the. I mean, like, I think so. but they. Uh, oh, that like, um, the sort of. To make sure she didn't all wasn't also killed, the parents had to go to, to whatever. Whatever happened to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's um. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I don't know what their <laughs> silence is supposed to signify. Anything? Just there's nothing. There's nothing they can say, though, right? Like, what do you say to, about that? Yeah, no, I I mean, like, not so much that part. It's more just, like, there was, like, an odd juxtaposition where she said something really warm about her grandparents that, like, they raised her and they were, um, uh, you know, sort of integral in keeping, like, the, 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 like, kind of trajectory alive that, like, she feels like she knows her parents thanks to her grandparents, sort of. Uh, um, like infusing that within her, like that that those memories have been passed down, so that there is kind of like, even though the line was like sort of broken and she couldn't know her parents, that her, her grandparents did the best they could to mend that. And I think that that part's pretty cool. But then it cuts to the same shot of the grandparents, like right after that, where they're just like kind of like this stone-faced presence. And I was like, that's a weird moment, like the. <laughs> Like, the, like, drawing the juxtaposition between like these sort of like warm people who kind of like gave this gift to her with like their just like stone faced presence. I was like, what? That's an odd shot. Like, don't know what to make of. But yeah, I don't know what to make of that either. <laughs> Guess we'll have to call up Guzman, ask him what he was thinking. Yeah. Not that I totally dr- trust authorial intent. <laughs> right. <laughs> Lots of people work on a movie. Yeah, that's true. And uh, even beyond that, lots of things are going on in a producer or director's brain that they aren't always consciously aware of why they're doing it. For sure. <laughs> yep. And documentaries are mostly created by editors. I would say, like, it's... I don't um, know who edited this one, but it seems like that this is yeah. a documentary with a very strong directorial hand, though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, usually the directors of documentaries are in the editing room, like, you know, with whoever else is helping them. But, like, yeah, yeah. documentaries are mostly made in post, or the stories for them are, anyway. That reminded me of a fun... Uh, story that's like not really related but sort of is regarding like in old Hollywood or whatever the directors weren't really allowed in the editing room a lot of the time so uh, like they would well partly because they were just so busy like one of the reasons why John Ford could make like five movies in a year is that as soon as he was done directing a movie he would start directing another one and then the editors would be taking over but that he didn't like that at all so one of the things he did early on in his career was he would only shoot like he wouldn't shoot any coverage and would do takes like one or two times so that yeah 
yeah. she would basically be editing the movie for the editors because they didn't have enough options. Yeah, Her- Herzog apparently does that same thing. Uh, there was some some documentary on Herzog where they were talking about a shot that he had in uh, Rescue Dawn, where it was like normally like a big shot that you would get a ton of coverage for, and he just had this one like handheld shot of Christian Bale like being rescued by a helicopter, and it was just one handheld shot like <laughs> just him going up like that. It was like that's all he shot of that that like big scene where like they had a helicopter lifting an actor off the ground. And the editors was like, "This is what we got to use." <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Despite sort of um, dissing him a little bit earlier in the podcast, I'll say that Steven Spielberg is someone who does that as well, sometimes really successfully. That I mean, he probably does more takes, but that he does uh, fairly significant wonders with everything that needs to be going on in it that sort of pushes a shot to be a certain way that he likes it. Mm-hmm. And unobtrusively, which is a real skill. Because I think that most people, I mean, worked hard on that one shot, want to make sure everyone knows how hard yeah. they work while they're watching it. Yeah. Sometimes that can work too, but yeah. a lot of times it feels exactly as masturbatory as you describe it. <laughs> like, um, as we've discussed on a different podcast I think Joss Whedon is one of the worst in terms of that and that his wonders are extremely visible and almost never feel particularly emotionally or thematically relevant yeah Avengers Age of Ultron is really obnoxious in that regard in the the opening it's like this really elaborately constructed wonder that I'm sure is like digitally patched together but it's all in service of the final shot that he had obviously thought up which is that they're all going to be fighting in different spots but then at a certain point they'll all be right next to each other running and jump over this thing so that he can do like a shot of them all framed like one two three four five like (laughs) with their faces in profile like a comic book or whatever so he'd get a poster shot yep and I was just like ugh I hate everything about this so much (laughs) Uh, yeah. Um, a good example, though, of it is uh, the movie The Cranes Are Flying, which is a shot that starts off as a close-up of the main character on a bus trying to get to the soldiers sort of parading through the village and leaving so she can say goodbye to her lover before he goes away and starts off in close-up. And then I can only assume that the... Uh, camera operator either climbs onto or hands the camera off to someone on a crane because it starts off like right up next to her face with like a huge wide angle lens like fisheye type nonsense going on and then like follows her off of the bus and then like goes way up into the air like over the crowd and you see this enormous like parade style street blocked thing going on very accurately captures the emotion of the moment and it's supposed to feel very big and revelatory because it's about war. Makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, that director really likes doing that in general. In uh, I Am Cuba, they rigged up something where they're like 
uh, so that they could do buildings like inside of a building and then outside they rigged up these very tiny wires that like the camera couldn't pick up so it'd just be like the cameras attached to a wire that way it could start inside of a room and like be following people around the room and then all of a sudden it goes out the window and is like you know like three stories up looking down at the street below it and I was like this is pretty pretty wild I wonder if I would still like that movie. Cranes are flying? Yeah. I had to guess, I would guess not nearly as much as I used to. Sure. Alright, uh, do we, do we have anything else to say about nostalgia for the light? No. I feel bad. Um. It's good that it stimulated other parts of our brain, too, though, that we're like, <laughs> we can go off on other things. I like that scientist style a lot. He looks like he's like, uh, the lost member of the Kinks or something with his like turtleneck. In. Like, oh yeah, yeah I, I feel like he was doing like a Carl Sagan knockoff. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like Carl Sagan. He's the king, and he's like, maybe he doesn't even dress like that normally, but he's like, gotta look like Carl Sagan. I'm gonna be in a movie. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta represent. Yeah, you really got me now. I'm just looking at my notes. I like what you said, though, about the cameras, because I couldn't understand why the rest of the movie was, like, so pretty, and then every time it cut to, like, a person, like, a talking head person, it's, like, this weird overlit, just, like, kind of terrible looking shot and I was like this yeah. seems strange I mean it could have been a total accident like it could have just been like that part had to be shot really quickly or whatever I mean you never mm -hmm. know with films so I um, the very first film book that I read which I can't remember the name of um, was you know talking about authorial intent and one of the reasons why I'm a little bit distrustful of people who say that they know <laughs> what a filmmaker meant is that like this interviewer was asking about this beautiful shot and run to Akira Kurosawa and they're like how could you ever think of framing it that way and he said there was a giant Nikon sign in the background <laughs> if I put the camera literally anywhere else <laughs> people would have known it wasn't taking place during medieval times <laughs> and so you know that's it's a part of filmmaking that people want to believe is not existent but it for sure is but to me it adds like an interesting element because it's like the same sort of tension of the movie as a whole it's like there's these extreme almost inhuman beautiful images that like you can't relate to at all and then something that feels like something that you personally could shoot like it's a home movie <laughs> interviewing like your uncle or whatever <laughs> um, and that that creates a very interesting visual tension that goes along with the thematic and tension. Yeah. Um, I had an embarrassing moment related to that uh, recently, but it was about a book, not a movie, where I was reading um, The Crying of Lot 49, and the version I found of it was like a free PDF, but apparently it was like someone had taken like a, a Kindle digital version and like scanned it in, and apparently one of the things that that does is like create really weird um, uh, 
spacing and formatting issues where like paragraphs will break up in the middle and because I the mood uh, the mood of the book was so like conspiratorial and like everything was kind of like falling apart around it I was like oh this is like a cool literalization of that and then I looked at a real version of the book that was written just like a regular book and I was like oh <laughs> tension didn't yeah. do that at all yeah it's an example I bring up all the time, but I always wish that, like, the Criterion edition of Videodrome, like, it would be, like, a big box, and you're like, ooh, how many discs and books and special features are in here, and you open it, and it's just, like, a ratty-looking VHS. <laughs> it's like, you're not allowed to watch Videodrome in, like, crisp, clean colors and whatnot. Like, Videodrome is meant to be watched at night on, like, a bad TV. <laughs> Where all the colors are just bleeding into one another. Yeah. <laughs> um, Alright. Yes. I don't, I don't have anything else to say about this movie. Basil never had anything to say about it to begin with. <laughs> Sorry, Guzman. <laughs> Michael has disappeared into the bottom right corner of his camera. <laughs> so, he's... He's clearly done as well. <laughs> Just taking a nap while the rest of us are talking. No, no. <laughs> um, all right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I hope you are enjoying these podcasts. I know we are enjoying making them, which is why we yeah. continue to do it, even though we don't really get any response <laughs> from you enjoying whether or not you're enjoying listening to them. But, uh... If you are, you can always subscribe to us using your podcast listening application and give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Such or even a one-star. Like, yeah. It'd be cool to just get weird feedback in general. I don't yeah. mind. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you want to... If you you're going to give us a review, uh, we prefer five-star, and then probably second most, we would prefer one-star. <laughs> th Three-star is like, not interesting. We don't care if you think we're okay. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we won't take centrism at this podcast. <laughs> yeah, or if you want to, uh, if you want to email us, uh, loose cannons podcast at gmail. Mm -hmm. Email us questions. You can always comments. do that, and we can ignore whatever you said. <laughs> um, all right, we will talk to you. I yeah. guess next time. Yeah, what's you next? won't you what's won't have the the chance to respond. It's uh, your fit pick, mannequin, but not the '80s comedy. Yeah. <laughs> the the what was it Joan Joan Crawford film? Yeah, Joan Crawford, mm -hmm. I believe. Frank Borsaggi. Yeah, is the director, but it was picked because Patrick wanted to do a Joan Crawford. That's right. Another movie. Joan Crawford, because Johnny Guitar was so good, first time. But yeah, I was bringing was... back. Ready to see some more Joan Crawford on the podcast. Joan Crawford, steez. <laughs> um, right. Thanks again for filling in, Michael. No problem. Mm -hmm. yeah. Bye. Bye. Hey, party, like, <laughs> sorry.
Hey! Waited for a pause and then Basil thought that was a good time to talk. <laughs> <laughs>